Good evening. Uh, my name is Joyce Kirk and I'm a Pro Vice-Chancellor Students here at RMIT and I'm also the Chair of the University's Equity and Diversity Committee. Um, in opening our evening's proceedings, uh, I would like to acknowledge the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nations as the custodians of the land on which RMIT is located. We pay our respects to their elders, past and present. This is quite a celebration, this particular Claire Burton uh, lecture. You will see that it's the uh, 10th anniversary and we'll have more of the, uh, this particular publication later. But it does represent uh, 10 years of Claire Burton lectures. And although it does uh, have on the front cover memorial lectures, I think that we should think about this as a celebration of all of Claire Burton's achievements and of the legacy that um, she has left us. Uh, also, in the um, publication, you will see a brochure, which is um, a brochure for the Claire Burton Memorial Fund, um, and a little bit of that later. But um, you will have seen that it does um, ask for a gift, and I'll explain a little bit about the gift in a moment. I would like to welcome you all here this evening. Uh, a special welcome, of course, to Marion Baird, who is our guest speaker. Uh, I was quite surprised when I walked into the room and saw this particular slide. If you know the University of Sydney, you will recognise the jacaranda tree. And the jacaranda tree in the uh, quadrangle has a particular significance. When it's at its most beautiful in November, it happens to be exam time. So you look at this with very mixed feelings if you've actually ever been a student at Sydney University. Uh, but it is a beautiful slide. No. Uh, I'd also like to welcome in particular two presenters of the Claire Burton Lecture from past years who are RMIT researchers. Uh, Belinda Probert, who is now, well, actually, she's sort of on loan to La Trobe. Um, but when she gave the lecture, she was uh, here on the staff of RMIT. She's now Deputy Vice-Chancellor at La Trobe University. And uh, Dr. Sarah Charlesworth, who presented the Claire Burton lecture, lecture only a couple of years ago. Uh, welcome. There is a third uh, Victorian who has given the Claire Burton lecture, and that's Moira Rayner. And Moira, unfortunately, is not able to be with us this evening, but she does send her apologies, and she also sends her best wishes. I'd just like to tell you a little about Claire Burton, not a lot. Um, you will know that uh, Claire was a leading researcher, teacher, uh, administrator, consultant, public intellectual, and activist. We don't have many people who are actually public intellectuals and activists. And these are the people who really do make a difference. They inspire debate. They encourage controversy from time to time. And they serve a very, very uh, important social function. Claire began her career as an academic and before she moved into the public sector and into her consultancy work and her activism. 
I was very fortunate to work with Claire for quite a short period of time, but she was one of the most inspiring people with whom I've worked. Um, Claire has, um, she undertook a number of reviews of equal opportunity in Australian universities, and there are a number of universities in this country who have made significant changes as a result of the consultancies that Claire completed. In fact, one of her last publications was a survey of gender equity staffing in Australian universities. Um, while um, thinking about uh, this evening's topic and, and Mariam Baird's uh, talk, which uh, Professor Margaret Gardner will introduce, I was thinking and we have been thinking about some of the changes that we have made around maternity leave provisions here at uh, RMIT and the impact of those provisions on our retention rates of women's staff are really quite telling. Um, I believe that the um, policy pack has been avail made available to you. If you haven't picked it up and you're interested in it, please make sure that you uh, do so. But since the policy changes were introduced in 2005, parental leave applications have increased by 70%. Almost 17% of our female workforce at RMIT has now taken maternity leave and there's been just over a 40% decrease in resignations after return to work from those people coming back. So uh, please take a, a copy of the parental leave pack. <laughs> um, I said I would say a little bit more about this brochure. Uh, the funds that are, have been donated to the Claire Burton Memorial Fund are used to fund a PhD scholarship uh, in the area of gender equity uh, across the five ATN universities. That's RMIT, University of Technology, Sydney, Queensland University of Technology, University of South Australia and Curtin University. We actually have with us this evening a scholarship holder from RMIT, Alice Stokes, and you won't be surprised to know that one of her supervisors is Sarah Charlesworth. Um, the scholarship is awarded for a period of 12 to 18 months. It has a value of $10,000. So um, from very small beginnings, the scholarship fund has built up and uh, there are quite a number of scholarship holders who have now completed their work well on the way to completing it. Um, I would encourage you uh, to support the fund. Uh, clearly uh, the people who are here in this room are interested in the sorts of research that the fund supports. Um, I now would like to ask Professor Margaret Gardner, Vice-Chancellor and President of RMIT, to introduce our guest speaker. Thank you, Margaret. Thank you, Joyce, and uh, welcome to everyone. Uh, it all, is always a pleasure to be here uh, at this Claire Burton lecture, and it's indeed been my privilege to have been at the very first in 1999, given by Dr Rosemary Hunter, 
and I'm trying to remember, uh, I'm not sure whether the very first lecture was given uh, that evening at QUT or whether I was just at the first, you know, the first round. So I can't tell you that, but I do remember the first one in 1999. And although I haven't been able to get to everyone ever since, I've certainly been to a number and it's a great pleasure to see um, previous lecture givers in the room, uh, like Belinda and Sarah, and I think beyond um, Moira, who couldn't be here, uh, Alison McKinnon also um, recently gave a Claire Burton lecture and is also in Melbourne. Um, you have heard and know about Claire Burton and why this lecture was uh, initiated by friends and family to commemorate her work. Uh, it is wonderful that after 10 years um, you have all received, I think, a copy of the, the book, The Promise and the Price, which was published um, out of UTS, and that publication commemorates those 10 years of lectures, uh, well, provides copies of the lectures which in themselves are commemorations of Claire Burton's uh, contribution to gender equity. Uh, and it's been an interesting journey because these lectures were hosted by the ATN WEXDEV group which is an executive development program for women that is part of the Australian Technology Network program and in itself is probably I think now one of the longest running cross-university um, executive development programs for women uh, in existence and it's now been going for a very long time and longer than 1999. I'm trying to remember exactly when it started but it certainly sort of had a very distinguished history now. But in recent times the Claire Burton Lectures have also been joined not just by the ATN but by other university partners, the University of Canberra, the ANU, and the University of Tasmania, which means that we've escaped the man mainland complete, uh, you know, focus and added that bit that usually gets left off the map in Australia called Tasmania. And that's a good thing that the lectures are now spread right across Australia. Um, those lectures that are captured in the book tell you that some topics, when they were given in 1999, you'd love to say, well, that's been resolved and we've moved on. It's a sort of a bit of a shocking read to realise that um, they're still very live issues. I would wish that some of the things that lectures had been given on were now dead issues, but they're not. Um, the first lecture in 1999 was on pay equity, um, acknowledging Claire's major contribution to that debate. And I'm just reminded by recent interjections by Liz Broderick um, about issues such as pay equity and her most recent, I think, wonderful uh, intervention on the case, uh, in the case of boards and women's representation, which again was a topic for discussion so many years ago and seems not to be moving forward in, in any great leaps and bounds. All the lectures focus on gender equity. They all build on work to which Claire gave a voice. They provide new voices, new perspectives, new research. They challenge our frameworks. They challenge the way we think about gender equity. They expand not just the horizons of academic debate, but they are a very, very important contribution to practitioner debate. Uh, in this field, we get a really strong indication of how important research can be to driving practice and driving activism. 
sometimes it drives more activism than it drives practice, but it, it's uh, an attempt to drive activism towards changes in practice. So the publication that you've got, and I hope you all enjoy, is not just a major tribute to Claire Burton as a theoretician and an activist, and it's quite interesting if you think about Claire Burton's early work. She was, she was in fact a very, um, she was very theoretically focused as a sociologist to begin with, and became more and more of an activist as time went on. Whether this is what happens to you with age, I don't know. Um, I think they say it's supposed to be the other way, but I'm not entirely convinced. Um, but when you see the work in there, it combines those two aspects. And so Claire made a significant contribution, and these lectures are part of that, uh, part of that trajectory. Uh, I want to now say that I hope you enjoy those, and I hope that in years to come, when we publish the next 10 years of lectures, we can look back and say some of the issues that were raised in the first 10 years are now behind us, that we now no longer worry about those things and we have moved on to new issues. And so that is my fond hope. Uh, and I hope to see you here and be able to uh, hear someone say that to me in 10 years' time. But it's my great pleasure tonight to introduce the speaker. Marion Baird's Associate Professor in Work and Organisational Studies at the University of Sydney and she's Director of the Women and Work Research Group, which she established at the University of Sydney. And her research, as many of you will know, has been focused on the impact of regulatory and policy environments on women's working lives and conditions. Marion herself has not been only a researcher in these fields. Most recently, she's been a key advocate of paid maternity leave in Australia. Her work has contributed to many, many debates and inquiries. She's published on the impact of regulation on low-paid women and the impact of changes to Australia's industrial relations regime. Marion is someone who's been a long time passionately engaged in this field. Uh, it is one of those odd and strange moments for me to say to you, I've known Marion since she was an undergraduate when we were both at the University of Sydney uh, and, uh, uh, and both in industrial relations. At that point, a male-dominated uh, department and field, but no longer so. Uh, and Marion has been passionately involved in these issues of women and work since those days, we won't say how long ago, uh, when we were both at the University of Sydney, now rather more decades than either of us like to, like to admit to. Uh, and, and she has continued that commitment and taken that commitment in research into changes for people in the field. Um, so she's looking at why, did, why it took so long for women in Australia to achieve paid maternity leave and what needs to be done next. I won't go through the sorts of things she's going to talk about, but as we know, we've really only had just recently the most major set of changes um, from the 1st of January 2010, when there is the right, finally, uh, for parents to working parents to request an additional 12 months of unpaid parental leave and to request flexible working arrangements. These are really big changes. They've been a long time coming should see the early case material like this that went into the Arbitration Commission all those many years ago 
you realise if you embark on issues of social change that affect large sections of the population, as issues around women will do, be prepared to dig in for the long haul because it's going to take a long time coming, it's going to take a lot of arguments, uh, it's going to take a lot of research and it's going to take a lot of pushing. Um, and I think what's wonderful is to see that a lot of that has had some impact in the field of parental leave, but Marion will have much more exciting things to say about that. I'm really, really pleased to introduce Marion Bird. Thank you so much. Um, we were going to use the lectern, but I think given the setup, it's maybe better to stand here. And before I start, I just want to say I do need to look at these notes, so I hope you don't mind that. Um, I'd like to acknowledge the Wurundjeri people and the land on, what, on which we stand and um, learn and listen. I um, also would very much like to thank um, Vice-Chancellor Margaret Gardner for that wonderful introduction. And it is so interesting, isn't it, after all those years, and it's quite true, we were both undergraduates together. Margaret was the year ahead and um, I always looked up to Margaret, you know, as, as you do, and it was a very, very male-dominated field, so Margaret was an outstanding scholar at Sydney University in those decades, which were the 70s, and that's a long time ago. Um, I'd also like to um, thank Professor Kirk for her introduction as well, and, um, and really endorse what she said about the Claire Burton lecture series. The book is definitely worth buying and reading, or I think you've been given it, so the book is definitely worth reading, and with the money you would have spent on the book, had you had to buy the book, you should contribute to the fund, so there's a plug, because <laughs> it's, a, it's a very, very um, wonderful uh, scholarship that, and really continues the work in this field. I would also like to extend my thanks to um, the ATN WexDev group for all the work that they do in keeping the Claire Burton Lecture Series alive and in keeping Claire's work and our shared interests both in the public domain and alive in our research. At, and I'll come back to that in a minute, but before I go on, I'm, I do need to also thank a couple of other people, in particular Amy, um, not sure, oh, there's Amy, Amy for doing the organising from this end and in Melbourne, thank you very much, and Sibylla Frank, who is sort of coordinating the lecture series from UTS in Sydney. She's not here tonight, but she's doing a fantastic job, and I'll let her know that later as well. This year um, marks the 11th anniversary of the Claire Burton Lectures, the book celebrates the previous 10 years of those lectures. And I am incredibly pleased and privileged to be here. In fact, as life would have it, and we've already had one coincidence, but I actually met and worked with Claire for a very brief time in the mid-1980s when, when I was a fairly young mother at the time um, with one of my four children, just after maternity, well, just after having him, I returned to work part-time, as you see women usually do that, and um, I was a tutor at, down at UTS Karingai, and Claire was working there at the time, and her very, very path-breaking assessments of pay evaluation systems and merit systems in organisations really were, um, I think, something that started me thinking in those very early days about the gendered nature of work. 
Um, Claire's other work on university staffing and furthermore on pay equity really are as relevant now as they were path-breaking in their day. Now, I have had the opportunity to present this lecture once before. I'm not sure if you're all familiar with the process, but um, you get the opportunity to go on the road and to present the lecture in each of the capital cities, as Margaret has explained, where the 18 universities are, and this year we're going to Hobart as well. So it's a wonderful opportunity and it gives you a chance to sort of refine some of the things you might say and correct some of the small mistakes. But one of the issues I realise I need to say up front is that I can't cover everything that I would like to cover and I'm sure you all have interests in. We. Um, well, I was asked to talk about maternity leave, and I will do that, but it, it will sort of canvas a slightly broader area than just the new maternity leave policy. But there are a lot of areas that I can't cover, and this is really um, ideas for other Claire Burton lectures, I suppose. In particular, I'm not able to really discuss those issues that affect women who haven't had children and are in the workforce and who choose over their lifetimes perhaps not to have children. I won't be discussing the increasingly um, tense times for more mature age women in the workforce as they share their other elder care responsibilities, nor can I really talk that much about the childcare issues, but I will touch on that, or the lack of women in senior management on, and on boards. And as Margaret's already said, these are all still topical issues um, demanding a lot of attention and more research, and I'm sure they could be the subject of future lectures. Uh, if I did cover all of those areas, of course, it would take me a much longer period of time and we'd be here for all night. As it is, I am going to talk to you for approximately half an hour, so I hope you're comfortable and, and are willing to listen to the various parts of the lecture that I'd like to deliver. And before I actually start the lecture, I need to say that what I'm drawing on in giving this lecture is, is a sort of a, a large body of research over a number of different projects and the involvement in some campaigns over the last 10 years, primarily the paid maternity leave campaign. But that research has taken place with colleagues, and one of those colleagues is Sarah Charlesworth here from RMIT, and I'm really lucky to work with Sarah. We work across states. We've done a number of projects together. Um, and as you probably all know, when, once you're at this stage in your academic work and you've done the PhD, which is the sole piece of work, your greatest satisfaction comes from the work you do with colleagues, and it's wonderful to share that work. I also have to acknowledge the work of my Sydney colleagues who've read this and commented on it, and of course everything I say, however, is my responsibility, so um, please, at question time, you can blame me or comment on my ideas. So to return to the topic, um, well 2009 is a very significant year. It marks the 30th anniversary of the unpaid maternity leave test case decision of the Australian Conciliation and Arbitration Commission. And just as Margaret said, there are huge wads of paper typed transcripts. And what's interesting is when Sibylla rang me and invited me to give the lecture at, earlier in the year, I was incredibly excited because we have just had access, and, not, and because that's 30 years ago, they're only releasing the transcripts now. So um, it's been quite a, a journey this year, and um, in reading through that historical material, some of that I'll present to you tonight, and um, it's also been a joy. And one of those joys has been interviewing Jan Marsh, who was the first ACTU um, research officer 
She was the first female ACTU research officer, she was the first female ACTU um, advocate, and she took the unpaid maternity leave test case to the Commission. And uh, we have spoken to Jan this year, and she has this lovely little red suitcase that she got for her 21st birthday. And in it is all her own personal files of that test case had not been opened, so it's like you know a researcher's dream to see this treasure chest of material. So it marks 30 years since that test case. It's also the 25th anniversary of the Sex Discrimination Act, and most importantly for us tonight, it marks the government's announcement of a national paid parental leave scheme for Australia. So the question is, how, how and why did it take so long to get paid maternity, or as it's now called, parental leave, in Australia. And I suggest the answer to this question is to be found in two interlocking sets of explanations. The first, I think, are the gendered structures of the labour force and workplace policy, and the second are the orientations to women and to mothers in paid work. In Australia and internationally, most attention has been paid to the policies and the institutions of parental leave um, in the various countries. But I argue that in, if we really want to shift policies in, in this country and other countries, we also need to address or understand the particular orientations we have um, to women both at home and in the paid workforce. And in order to get a more equal set of outcomes for men and women, we will need to have both legal and normative reform. And in this lecture, what I'd like to do is demonstrate to you why I think that's the case and why I think we are actually in a period of profound change, though, as Margaret said, because of the issues we're dealing with, it's a very, very slow revolution. So I'll begin with a brief overview of the most important structural change in the Australian labour market in the last 30 years, and that's the increasing participation of women in the paid workforce. And then I'll move on to some of the policy responses and the implications of those, followed some, by some observations about the changing orientations to and of women at work. And you'll notice that I've actually amended the title. The original title was A Slow Revolution, and as someone commented in reading it, perhaps you should include the unfinished. And that does pick up on the themes that really run throughout the book and, as Margaret has already said. So I'll conclude by offering some suggestions about where I think policy should change in the future. Um, the first slide shows you the participation rates of men and women over the last 30 years. And one of the things that is most obvious in that slide, and I honestly did not allocate the pink and blue to the, to the graphs, it was done automatically, but what you do see in that slide is a continuing and slight decrease in male participation, but a rather um, more... Um, pronounced increase in female participation in the paid workforce. And that is a trend that is set to continue. Um, however, as many of you would know, one of the defining characteristics of that increasing female participation is the almost 50-50 split between full-time and part-time or casual work for women. So the, these um, bold and lighter pink lines demonstrate full-time and part-time work for women, the bold blue line is full-time for men, and the paler blue line down the bottom is men's part-time work. 
Now, as you can see from that slide, therefore, female participation follows a very different pattern to men's participation. And this has been a rather problematic feature for policymakers in governments, in unions, in business, and, um, so, and society more broadly, because most of those people who have been involved in making policy are very steeped in the concept of the ideal worker, or as Barbara Pocock has said before, the careless worker, where jobs, policies and expectations have been built around full-time and lifetime attendance in paid work, with the necessary support provided in the private domain of the home and by women. But perhaps what I the most illuminating change, and I really like this graph, and some of my colleagues here from the Institute of Family Studies, we've just been discussing this one. This graph is a really interesting one, and it shows female participation rates through different age groups over a 30-year period. And the dark green line at the bottom represents 1979, and the lightest green line at the top is 2009. And so what we see here is, I think, one of the most dramatic changes in female workforce engagement. Until the childbearing ages, women are now at work in increasingly similar proportions as men. Women are staying in the workforce longer before they have their children. Those women who have children and are then out of the workforce for shorter periods of time while the children are young. They are having fewer children overall. And finally, as mothers, they are returning to the workforce and working for more years overall. So we're seeing in that top curve a rather flattening out of the traditional M dip. Now, I argue that this has important implications, not just for policymakers in business and in unions, but for what goes on in the home as people make their decisions about who is going to do the childcare who is going to do the cooking, the cleaning and all the other domestic arrangements. And this, this reality that we see in this slide highlights, I think, the falseness of the distinction between mothers at work and mothers at home, which is perpetuated by some groups very fond of scoring political points with such egregious rhetoric. The truth is that many women, and most women, over their life course are more and more likely to have periods in paid work and periods at home in unpaid care and unpaid work. So that the lines between work and care for women are very fluid and policies that improve upon work-based conditions will therefore improve conditions at home and, one would hope, lead to more gender equitable relations between the sexes. So this changing pattern I think more than any other, crystallises the profound contextual change over the last generation and demonstrates the need for policies that reflect and respond to these transitions in the life cycle of women. But how have policymakers responded to these very paradigmatic changes? And why have the policies been so slow and, I would argue, incomplete? This brings me to the crux of my analysis today. I think it's about the confusion and ambivalence to women's um, actual and perceived workforce roles, which often manifests as outright hostility and at other times as covert discrimination. And we've seen quite a bit of evidence of that just recently with the reports from the Workplace Ombudsman about continuing and perhaps increasing um, discrimination against pregnant women and mothers. The question seems to be one for 
society to ask, are women to be regarded primarily as mothers needing welfare and support from the state, or as workers entitled to bargain for and receive decent pay and suitable working conditions as expected for male workers? These underlying and often unspoken orientations to women, and particularly to mothers in the Australian workplace, have a very long history. And for today, I'll just go back to the early 70s and the origins of the first maternity leave test case. While the marriage bar was lifted in the state and federal public services in 1966 and 69 respectively, employed women who had children had no maternity leave and therefore no right to return to their jobs. Effectively, this meant that having a child ended a woman's job tenure. And generally, there was quite um, vague or little understanding of what maternity leave meant in the early 1970s, and this was quite obvious in one of the test case witnesses in the 79 test case. And it's someone, um, I'm in Melbourne, so I think I can quote this, Mrs Cornelius Furs. Now, uh, Mrs Cornelius of Cornelius Furs, she was a star witness in the 79 test case. And um, Jan Marsh recalls this evidence. She said, yes, I believe in maternity leave. I've got all these machinists and they go and have their babies and then if there's a vacancy sometime down the track, I let them come back. And that to her was maternity leave. In 1972, Whitlam won the It's Time election and in 1973 introduced legislation providing 12 weeks paid maternity leave for federal public servants. The responsible minister, Clyde Cameron, stated that the bill will also help women endeavouring to pursue their careers on the same terms as men. However, simultaneously, the government stated in the very same speech that paid maternity leave cannot flow on to other employees, that is the private sector, and that if the matter came before the Australian Conciliation and Arbitration Commission, the government would be prepared to intervene and to officially oppose it. Further, the government believed that any flow-on would be detrimental to employees as it would discourage employers from hiring women of childbearing age. I think these are very familiar arguments to your ears and we've actually heard the same arguments in the last few years. But those two sets of comments, I think, represent the polarised orientations to women. On the one hand, advocating equal career opportunity for women, while on the other hand, assuming and accepting that this comes with the cost of potential discrimination in the workplace. But during the early 1970s, um, as many of us remember, and some of us don't, so this is sort of a bit of a history lesson for some of the people in the room, it was a wonderful period, obviously. Um, it's the period of cheesecloth skirts and um, Indian dresses. Um, during the early 70s, there was considerable feminist activity within and outside the union movement. With women seeking to change policy and ideas about women and work, and this led to a number of different campaigns, but one of those that really gained um, a lot of traction was the, the need for a working women's charter, which was adopted by the ACTU in 1977. In 1978, the ACTU held a special union conference, and it's interesting when you go back and read the records of this. They held and agreed to hold that conference because they forgot to or decided not to do much in International Women's Year in 1975, and this was some way of making up for that oversight. 
So the Working Women's Charter was put to the conference and a recommendation for, priority, for prioritising maternity leave came from that conference. A submission, and it had three parts, a submission was to be made to the Australian Government that the Government provide paid maternity leave. It was also argued that a claim for unpaid maternity leave be included by unions when they negotiate with employers, and thirdly, that the ACTU would run a test case for unpaid maternity leave. The Charter, for your interest, also supported the establishment of community-based childcare centres, union action to gain workplace-based childcare, improvements in part-time work and trade union training. So the ACTU submission to the government, which argued for six weeks paid maternity leave um, to be paid from Social Security, seems from our research to have not gone much further. It was the test case for unpaid maternity leave that was pursued most energetically by the ACTU and resulted in the biggest policy change of that time. Women's workforce participation during the 1970s increased rapidly with a much higher increase for married women than non-married women. And yet community attitudes to women working outside the home were still very slow to change. And there were very lively debates being conducted in the press and in many people's houses, I think, about whether married women should be working at all. Again, the disjuncture between labour market changes and orientations to women at work are evident. These were especially pronounced during the period of higher unemployment, which towards the end of the 1970s was averaging around 7%, and ignited debates about whether married women and mothers were taking men's and youth's jobs. Many newspapers ran stories proclaiming if mum quit work, there'd be jobs for the boys and girls. In fact, I, I think at that time I was just finishing my undergraduate degree and starting a teaching degree and remember those debates um, around the... and I actually started teaching in secondary schools in those secondary schools about married women, should they be making way for the youth. Um, but the questions were never raised, of course, about men. It was, I'd say, quite a man's world at the time. And not only was there some hostility to women at work, there was also a lot of question marks about whether or not women actually had the intellect to do the work. And I debated whether or not to include these quotes, but I'll put this one up. When Jan, this was reported in the Australian Women's Day, when Jan was running the test case, this, this um, wonderful quotation came out. Jan Marsh purrs in your presence with huge blue beguiling eyes, a soft voice and a frame so petite you'd swear she'd crush in one hand. She doesn't bombard people with union policy and, it's, and she's quite ready to listen and to talk on other subjects. In one of the other papers, it said, Jan Marsh, 24, this is slightly earlier, causes a ripple of admiration when she walks into the dry, tension-filled atmosphere of a dispute hearing in the Arbitration Commission. This slim, pretty blonde who joined the ACTU as an assistant research officer has the intellect to match her good looks. <laughs> so imagine if we printed that today. Anyway, 
Um, there's some wonderful material in Jan's suitcase. So despite, but despite the hostility to women working, considerable momentum did build, and um, in, respo in response to the ACTU's claim, the test case for unpaid maternity leave was held, and Jan, as I said, um, presented that case. She did almost all of the research, she presented all of the arguments, and all of those arguments were presented verbally in those days. They didn't present written transcripts, so you have to go back and get the sort of whatever the equivalent of hindsight is in the Commission. Um, while we were looking through the case, we found the original poster that they used and which was on the wall in Jan Marsh's office at, in the ACTU. Um, this was the 1978 case. Rika Moore was the artist. We've since contacted him as well, and he's fine for us to... Um, to use his artwork. Apparently that poster caused some controversy because of the way it displayed women and breastfeeding. But um, it's sort of an interesting one to see, especially as I'll show you later the more recent ones. So the maternity leave test case of 1979, which would extend unpaid maternity leave and very importantly job protection to private sector award covered employees, represented an enormous change in industrial and social norms, just as the pay equity cases earlier in that decade had. When the decision to grant 52 weeks unpaid maternity leave and the right to return to one's job was handed down by the Commission, there were some um, quite joyous reactions, but also some very hostile ones. This is one of the joyous ones, where Bob Hawke, who was president of the ACTU at the time, is congratulating Jan Marsh. Now, I also debated whether to put that picture in, but then I was looking through through these um, archives that we've got, and I don't know if you can notice down here, and I only just noticed it when I was um, putting the slides together for the presentation. That, that was produced in The Australian on the 10th of March 1979, which I think was the day after the case, and the parental leave decision this year was announced on Mother's Day, the 10th of March 2009. So it's really quite a coincidence of history how that timing has worked. But I said there were also a lot of hostile reactions, and there were. And talking to Jan, she still obviously feels the resentment that some people had towards her for taking that case. She was obviously stunned, too, that not everybody thought it was a brilliant decision. She said in the Australian Women's Weekly, is reported as saying, and it's interesting how much the Women's Weekly did report on workplace issues in that time, too. In the Australian Women's Weekly, she said, a lot of people think it's a new concept construed by mad women, but it's not new. Maternity leave has been established a long time internationally. Of course, she was referring to the overseas trends, which for years to come surpassed Australia. Jan also went on to the Mike Walsh show one day. She was flown to Brisbane, um, and it was, the, um, short, it was in the week of the, the decision. And uh, she was there again presenting, or well, talking about the decision with one of the employer advocates. And as she said, Mike Walsh decided to put the decision, whether or not the audience would, be, would approve of it, to the audience, a largely female daytime audience, and they were overwhelming, overwhelmingly against it. They said it was far too radical. When she caught the plane home at the airport, the woman who served her a cup of tea almost hissed at her and said she was the woman who had caused this terrible policy to be brought into Australia. So you can see there were lots of tensions between, again, this issue of working women and um, women at home. In the interview, 
with Jan, she recalls that it made her realise how courageous the Commission was to take the step to introduce unpaid maternity leave with job protection because, in her words, it really wasn't just reflecting where the community was in its thinking at the time, it was really actually advancing the cause, which is not what the Commission was known to be doing. In effect, the test case decision of 1979 to grant unpaid maternity leave um, lasted for the next 30 years, with some modification in relation to adoption leave and parental leave and then carers, extension to carers in 2001. It was included in the industrial relations legislation, the IR Reform Act in 1993, and the right to 52 weeks unpaid parental leave, and importantly, as we'll see later, job protection, is now included in the Fair Work, in the Fair Work Act as one of the 10 national employment standards. But perhaps, despite it seeming to be the best that could be achieved at the time, it was in fact, or perhaps I'd argue, a lost opportunity to win paid maternity leave for a whole generation of working women. As the rest of the developed world increased paid maternity leave and then paid parental leave and paid paternity leave during the 1970s, the 1980s, the 1990s and the early 2000s, Australia and the USA remained the only two countries without such a system, relying instead on individual arrangements, union bargaining interest and strength and more recently on employers' business case rationales. These are very different arguments to those used in the original unpaid maternity leave test case, where the emphasis was actually quite strongly on maternal and infant welfare and job security. Um, Dr Llewellyn Jones, many of you probably grew up with his book, was a star witness for the union movement at that case as well. In Australia, however, the bargaining system only slowly and very partially diffused paid maternity leave to private sector employees. For example, in our research just this year, we show that only 16% of all current enterprise agreements in the private sector, only 16% include any reference to paid maternity leave, and the duration is considerably less than the international standard of 14 weeks. In 2007, then, the Federal Labor Government was elected with Prime Minister Rudd saying it was time to bite the bullet on maternity leave. In 2008, the government therefore referred the question of paid parental leave to the Productivity Commission to investigate the economic and social costs and benefits of such a scheme. Now, of course, there were a lot of other campaigns in the intervening years, and I haven't got time to cover them all. But important, perhaps, were the 98 Herioc inquiry into pregnancy discrimination, which again raised the need for paid maternity leave, and then the 2002 inquiry held by the Human Rights Commission, which recommended 14 weeks paid maternity leave, but which the government rejected and instead introduced the baby bonus in 2004. The campaigning involved in the most recent round oh, there the quotes. The campaigning involved in the most recent round, um, perhaps I think more than that earlier test case drew together, and more than some of those campaigns that came through in the late nineties, drew together people in in business, in unions and in academia, and groups of men as well. 
as well as those people who had infant health and breastfeeding interest at heart. So it was a much bigger coalition of interest. In contrast to the 1979 case, by 2007 and 2008, there was widespread community support. Much polling found that the community expected paid maternity leave to be introduced. It certainly just wasn't the mad women this time who agreed it was time for change. So this year, 30 years after the original test case, we had the announcement by the Treasurer of a paid parental leave scheme for Australia, 30 years in the making, a slow revolution indeed. The case for a government-funded scheme, which the ACTU had originally suggested 30 years ago, was carefully developed and made by the Productivity Commission. Much of it was accepted by the government, but now it's time to ask how good is the policy. This is the government's new brochure on the paid parental leave scheme. So let me briefly, and I mean very briefly, summarise what the objectives of this scheme are. And they are threefold, once again demonstrating the various pools of welfare, industrial and gender equity needs. The first objective is to enhance child and maternal health and development. The second one is to facilitate greater workforce participation for women. And the third one is to promote gender equity and work-family balance. I'm not sure if you can read this caption here, but as you can see, what's interesting in this is that they talk about it being a child-centred approach to family policy. Once again, this dilemma about where to house such policy, and it's very clearly in the families section of the government's policy portfolio. From January 2011, the government will provide 18 weeks paid parental leave at federal minimum wages to the primary carer, who may be a permanent employee, a casual worker, contractor or self-employed with 330 hours of work in 10 of the previous 13 months. For the majority, the payment will be made by the government to the employee with their employer acting as the paymaster. At the current federal minimum wage, the parental leave payment is equal to almost $10,000. It will be treated as income. It will therefore be taxed. Recipients will lose family tax benefit B and they will also lose the dependent spouse offset. It's difficult to accurately assess at this stage the exact number of women and parents who will make use of the scheme. According to the government, about 148,000 mothers will be eligible each year. Many, but not all of these mothers, will be better off than if they just accepted the baby bonus. Our research that I've done with Gillian Whitehouse at Queensland University, for example, shows that the majority of women in retail, hospitality and low-level production work are currently unlikely to receive any paid maternity leave from their employer, and they should benefit from the scheme provided casual maintains a very wide definition. With a new baby, loss of income and financial stress are a significant burden on women and families, and our study, the Parental Leave in Australia study, found that financial concerns were the most commonly cited reason for women returning to work earlier than they would prefer. Some working women will now have access to paid maternity leave where they had none before, and based on estimates of who currently has access through employer-provided schemes, it could be up to 40% of the workforce, depending on where they sit in that fine line between the baby bonus and paid maternity leave or parental leave. 
For other women who have employer-provided maternity leave, the scheme may increase the time they stay at home with their children by up to 18 weeks. And that was one of the intentions of the Productivity Commission's scheme. Now, the optimal duration for maternity leave is another contested question, and it hasn't received much attention in Australia to date, except by a few researchers. Of course, optimum means different things to different people. For employers, for the employee, and for infants, optimum all carries a slightly different meaning. I think this is set to become quite a challenging issue when maternity leave is coupled with the potential to take an unpaid period of leave of up to two years under the new right to request. I'll return to that issue in a little while. I'm not convinced if it's good policy if we want to improve gender equity to extend the period of unpaid maternity leave. The health literature quite clearly points to six to 12 months being optimum for infant health, but Moss and O'Brien, two very well um, credentialed European researchers in the area, conclude that, I think this is very important, when they, um, over, when they do an overview of all the research in the area, that the positive child effects are maximised when the leave for the mother is paid and provided in a job-secure context. So it's that combination that is very important. From our research, we know that using the current policies in Australia, that is unpaid leave and employer-provided leave where it's available, a period of between 9 to 12 months is when Australian mothers are most satisfied with their return to work. The review of the fairly recently introduced New Zealand scheme suggests six months is preferred by employers and Canadian research suggests that any more than one year may negatively impact on female workforce attachment and employer reactions. The evidence from overseas also shows, however, that women do return to work after they've taken maternity leave, and I think you've got evidence of that here, as you've said, at RMIT. And certainly we found that in the Parental Leave in Australia study, though most often they would like to return to part-time working hours rather than full-time hours. Class will also impact on the use of leave. Canadian, American and New Zealand research shows that well-educated, higher-earning women in the core labour market are most likely to be eligible for the leave and to use the leave, while less educated, lower-income earners are less likely to know of the policies or to use them. So while the new Australian scheme expands on existing paid parental leave conditions and provisions through either company policy or um, union bargaining, I do have a number of concerns with it. Technically, the name of the scheme is slightly misleading. The scheme and the forthcoming legislation are really designed to provide a system for government funding of the pay, not for maternity or parental leave as such, as there is no job protection element in the proposal and there won't be in the legislation. That remains in the National Employment Standard for unpaid leave which has different eligibility criteria. Some women will therefore be eligible for paid parental leave, but not for the NES unpaid leave, and thus will be without a job guarantee. As we know, many women are not employed full-time or in permanent jobs, and thus employment status is a critical factor in determining women's success to access to entitlements. Thus, the de definition of what becomes an eligible casual, which is yet to be finalised, will be crucial to determining 
who will have access to the paid parental leave. We understand they are going to try and define it in a very broad way. Because the, the scheme is to be paid at federal minimum wages, not all women will receive wage replacement levels, although some women will, of course, because women are notoriously concentrated in low-paying jobs. Wage replacement, however, we know from research in any country that has undertaken the research, and there is quite a lot of research in this area, wage replacement is necessary if we want gender equity. With the present policy, furthermore, lifetime earnings will be negatively affected as um, employers do not have to um, provide the superannuation contribution. And to match this, you may not have picked up on this, a recent tax office ruling has made changes to existing superannuation payments voluntary. It is also unclear how employers will integrate the scheme with existing policies. Some may or could use it to subsidise their current payments or even wind back current entitlements to the new policy. I would hope, of course, that this does not happen and that the policy is used as a foundation from which to improve upon. I must say, when you read through the Productivity Commission and hear their report and hear them talking about it as well, that is clearly what they intended. There is no specific paternity leave provision in the new policy, as originally recommended by the Productivity Commission, and evidence strongly indicates that fathers will not use paid leave when it's set at minimum wages, and so gender relations in the home can be expected to remain largely unchanged. I think we also need to consider the interaction of the new paid parental leave policy, which I've said is housed in FAXIA, Family and Community Services Portfolio, with aspects of the new Fair Work Act housed in workplace relations. And of particular relevance are the policies we've already alluded to, the two new right to request provisions in the National Employment Standards. As Margaret said, they are indeed revolutionary in the Australian context. The NES provide for both mothers and fathers to have 12 months each of unpaid parental leave or the right to request an extension to unpaid parental leave by up to 12 months for one of the carers. The NES also include a right to request changes in working arrangements if you have young children. Both rights, however, have very limited enforcement strength unless they're in an enterprise agreement where you can then take it up with the Fair Work Commission and Ombudsman. But there's a wealth of evidence internationally to show that men do not take that unpaid leave because of household economic needs and workplace and employer resistance. In Australia, again in the Parental Leave in Australia study, less than 10% of eligible fathers ever used any unpaid parental leave, a provision they've had available to them since 1990. Unfortunately, therefore, extending female usage or potentially extending female usage of unpaid leave by another 12 months could be somewhat counterproductive, further entrenching gender roles and to return to that other problem, raising employer resistance to employing women. And this is an issue I think we still have to resolve in Australia. Second, while some evidence suggests that the UK right to request um, changes in working arrangements has been reasonably success successful. Other evidence from the UK also sounds a warning for gender equity in Australia, as the increased flexibility has not altered gender relations, nor has it changed caring patterns in households. 
Not surprisingly, the majority of requests come from women with small children, principally requests to change to part-time work, thus continuing the trend of women working in low-paid and sometimes and often low-status part-time work. So, although overall the new paid parental leave scheme and the new rights to request are significant policy changes and even revolutionary, as we've said in the Australian context, the scheme does fall short on a number of areas and the right to request the changes, sorry, the right to request options that will start in January 2010 may actually result in unintended consequences. But as I mentioned at the outset, Policy change is just one side of the reform needed to achieve greater gender equity. And so even with new policies, will we see a change in our orientations to women and of women at work? And here I think my speech actually taps into one that um, Belinda Probert gave a few years ago, Grateful Slaves. On reviewing the history of policy developments in maternity leave in Australia, one disturbing consistency that underpins much of the government and the ACTU's reluctance to introducing or pushing for paid maternity leave was perceived and real employer opposition. In addition, from some quarters, there also appears to be a long-held and deep-seated ambivalence and reluctance to accept, accept working women, particularly working mothers. These sentiments continue from the 1970s, when women were accused of taking jobs from men and youths, to the ongoing need to placate employers and the unwillingness to fully compensate women for taking maternity leave. I can't imagine a policy for men that said if they took the leave they would only receive minimum wages, and yet we allow that for women. In 2005, after the Heriock inquiry, Prue Goward, who was then the Sex Discrimination Commissioner, said that the debate that she had held had made it clear that Australia was still struggling with the concept of mothers working as a moral issue. This is despite the fact that women are clearly needed to boost an otherwise shrinking labour force, itself a result of our ageing population and historically low birth rates. So it seems to me that there remains a very uneasy settlement in the minds of Australians between women as mothers and women as workers. Yet women's experience of both work and mothering are changing. 